Guys, it's so good to be here tonight. For all of you who are tuning in online, so stoked that you uh, made the time to be here. For everyone who's here in person, it's great to see your guys' faces, or at least the top portion of your faces. Um, So uh, tonight, we are talking about one question. What does it look like to imitate God? Now, When we're talking about imitations, um, my mind immediately goes to something familiar for me, which is uh, the wizarding world of Harry Potter. And um, when I think of uh, imitation in the context of Harry Potter, I think of a type of potion. Does anybody, can anybody guess what potion this would be? Polyjuice potion. I'm sure you guys were probably thinking that. Um, Polyjuice potion is this uh, really complicated potion within the story that helps you take on the appearance of someone else. Now, if you don't know anything about Harry Potter, I'm going to give you just enough information for the analogy to the land, and then we'll continue. So the point of the polyjuice potion is to take on someone's appearance. It's a super complicated potion, and it's used by both the good guys and the villains throughout, um, throughout the book and movie series. Um, but you see, even though it makes you into the perfect, perfect likeness of someone else, it doesn't actually make you that person. What it doesn't do is it doesn't give you any of their mannerisms, their speech patterns, their character qualities. So if you are trying to use the polyjuice potion to fool other people, you have to like study very specific things about the person that you're taking, uh, you're taking place of. So for example, in the very last um, two movies, last book, Deathly Hollows, uh, the character Hermione takes the, takes, uh, the form of a villain named Bellatrix or Strange to get into her vault and the bank where there's dragons and all kinds of stuff. It's crazy. Um, but sh- this villain is so other than Hermione. Hermione is very smart, um, very kind, um, very ferocious. Um, but uh, Bellatrix is the epitome of a villain in any classic story. So she takes on her appearance, but she doesn't automatically um, take on all the, the qualities that make up Bellatrix. So she has to pretend to be like her. And she had studied her and she was able to um, really put forward a lot of her same mannerisms. But still, there's one point when they show up near the bank. Uh, she is somebody who knows Bellatrix, walks up to her and talks to her for a second. And she's polite and almost blows her cover because this character is not polite. So this kind of, to me, brings out something that's very important when it comes to impersonations. The key to impersonating someone is not just to look like the person, not just to generally act like the person, but to target specific characteristics from that person and begin to embody them. Now, over the course of this year, we have talked a lot about what does it look like to follow after the way of Jesus. And that there are two different paths in the world. There's the way of Jesus and there's the way of the world. There's the way of our culture. There's the way of our family of origin. There is the way of the brokenness that, in, that is inhabited inside of us. But to put it another way tonight, where the Apostle Paul is going to go as we journey into Ephesians, starting in, verse, in chapter 5 and verse 1, is he's going to be asked, what we're going to be looking at is the question, who are you imitating? Are you an imitator of the specific characteristics of this world? Do you embody the characteristics of your family of origin, the dysfunction that might exist there? 
Do you embody the characteristics and um, you epitomize and impersonate what it looks like to be at home in the world that we live in? Or do we look more like Jesus? Now, if you're anything like me, the, the, the answer to that question isn't so black and white. It's oftentimes both, right? You see, for me, I can oftentimes desire to emulate the characteristics that defined Jesus. Things like peace, patience, love, gentleness. Things like self-sacrifice, hope, being a good listener. You see all these beautiful character, character qualities out of Jesus And while I might desire those, while you might desire to live out those realities, it's still that so easily we can imitate the characteristics of our world, our culture. Things like materialism, the pursuit of personal happiness over holiness, the prioritization of our own independence, stoking the flames of divisions and not advocating for a holistic vision of justice for our world. Now, As we dig into this, this is not a call to perfection. It is a call to action. Because as we're going to see tonight, our call to imitate God in fullness is not a call to just imitate God from a general sense or just sometimes when it's convenient for us, but to target specific character qualities of God and grow to embody them more and more. You see, what we're being called into is that we would imitate God specifically by walking in love. That we'd imitate God specifically by walking in love. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to open up your Bible or pull it up on your smart device, I am reading in the English Standard Version. If you are tuning in online, I believe if you are not streaming it to your TV, you can actually pull up um, the ESV Bible on there as well. So, Here's what Paul has for us tonight. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So let's get into this passage. And we're gonna start with one of my favorite words that we find in scripture, especially within the letters of the New Testament. It's the word, therefore. Therefore, whenever we see that word, of course, if you've been in a part of Mosaic, we love the word therefore, because what it implies is that this verse is not meant to be read out of context. It has something that pointed into it. In other words, it's in light of what you just heard, blank. So let's do a quick recap before we get further into today's passage and we get into that therefore. So Paul is the author of this letter. He is writing it to a church in a place in the Roman Empire called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was powerful. Ephesus was beautiful. Ephesus was filled with brokenness. And the church reflected those realities. It was filled with both Jews, ethnic Jews, and ethnic non-Jews, otherwise known as Gentiles. And with all this beautiful potential that existed in Ephesus, there was also a lot of old things they were holding on to. Old grudges, old religious beliefs, old passions, old spaces of brokenness, both within their community and within their individual lives. And throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul has been reminding them first and foremost of their truest identity. And the most important thing about them is not what they do, it's who they are in Jesus. 
that they have been born again into a new family. They are, not no, they are no longer defined simply as being Jews or Gentiles. They're no longer defined as citizens of the world, but they are defined as sons and daughters of the king of the cosmos. And that changes everything. See, most recently where Paul was just at and where we were going over over the last two weeks was that he was encouraging them to drop the brokenness and pick up the beauty, to not live in the passions that they once walked in. They used to walk in these ways with misinformation, with lies, with slandering to one another, with theft, corrupt talk, anger and rage. But now, But now, because of the beauty of the gospel, they've been called into something altogether other, altogether beautiful, altogether something that the world cannot comprehend. A life that is just bursting with things like radical forgiveness, edifying words, encouragement, unity, speaking the truth in love. Now, let's be real. If you were with us the last few weeks as we were journeying through chapter four, it felt like we were kind of getting like a fire hose squirted in our face. Like it was just a lot of stuff that Paul is talking about. A better analogy would be to say it's as if the apostle Paul took us on a journey underwater and we went deep, deep, deep diving to uncover this treasure of gospel implications. The realities that come out because of the goodness of the gospel because of this new identity. So in chapter four, he's telling us all of these gospel implications. But to take the analogy even further, it's like Paul also knows that we need to to kind of come up back up to the surface and catch our breath before we go back in in the rest of chapter five, which is where we're hanging out tonight. We're kind of at the surface and he is bringing us back to the surface to remind us of why these gospel implications matter. Because we don't live out the implications of the gospel so that we can be loved. We don't live out the implications of the gospel so that we can be acceptable by God, so that we can now have value, so that we aren't bad anymore or we are finally good. That's not the point. Instead, in light of this, in light of this, in light of this epic deep dive into some very specific gospel implications, he is reminding us who we are and who, why we are meant to be that. So in verse one, he says again, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So why do we live out gospel implications? Because we are imitators of our dad. We're imitators of our dad. Kids love to imitate their parents, right? Um, Asher has been in our family for five months now. He's two, almost three years old. Um, He's our son who we finalized our adoption on Wednesday. Um, Shout out. Um, Asher's asleep by now. He's not listening. When we were in China getting him at the beginning of the pandemic, well, kind of the end of the pandemic there, beginning of the pandemic here, everything fell apart about a week into us being there or a week into us having Asher. We weren't able to leave. We didn't know how we'd ever get him out of the country. We were literally having diplomatic issues. We were having legal issues. We were getting threatened. We were facing all kinds of logistics things. Flights were being canceled left and right. There was almost no flights out of China. We didn't know how we were getting Asher home. And every day, honestly, felt like another day of bad news. 
And um, out, but all through all this, we're trying to care for this this toddler who we just met, who's now with us until he goes to college or something. And um, and and we're trying to like stay as lighthearted as we can for his sake, right? As we're like getting constant bad news. So like Allie and I would always say the same phrase, um, not again, except you go, not again, like that, you know? And like trying to like play it off. Like, oh, it's not like the world's falling apart around us. <laughs> but it was, it really was. But Asher was kind of catching on to that. And he thought that was really funny. And he'd like laugh and scrunch his nose and like, yeah, not again. And, but one morning um, about a week after us having him, we go into um, the room, into the room he was staying in at our friend's apartment, and uh, he pops up in his crib, and he looks at us and he goes, "Not again!" And it was adorable. I mean, it was just like the cutest imitation you've ever seen. And um, what we've noticed about Asher is that he likes to already just five months in take on some of our mannerisms, our phrases, our expressions. So we have to really watch what we say because his vocabulary is expanding so fast. And now, granted, Asher is not very good at impersonations. Like nobody's thinking that he's me or anything like that, but his effort's pretty cute. Now, we are called to imitate our father. We are called to imitate our dad, but not because we are loyal servants, not because we should be terrified of his wrath and anger, but as this passage says, as beloved Children, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That word beloved means to be uniquely loved. If you are adopted into the family of God, you are uniquely loved. Now, this reminds me um, back, at, back where we started in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, verse 5. I love this passage. He says, verse 4 into verse 5, In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. He chose us. This wasn't our own doing. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it, but he gave it to us. Our adoption is not our doing. It was the work of a dad who looked at us and said, that one's mine. And that's really good news. So what does it look like to imitate our dad? Remember, the key to a good impersonation is to target specific characteristics and begin to embody them. Now, there are realities of God that I'm going to go ahead and imagine that you are not going to be very good at impersonating. You probably are not going to be able to, from um, with the whisper of a word, be able to create atoms. Probably not, right? You probably aren't all-knowing enough to know why all of a sudden this year, instead of raining every day at three o'clock, it's now starting to rain at six o'clock. I don't understand. Central Florida is crazy. Mosquitoes, like that's enough said, right? Like why do mosquitoes even exist? God does, and we can't impersonate him to figure that out. And we also don't have the capacity to send our only son to die for the sins and the brokenness of a fallen world. But as we discover more and more and more of the Father's character through the scriptures, we learn that everything he does, everything he decides comes from his character that is rooted in the love of a parent. 
Now, earlier this week, there was a video that I saw um, from one of my favorite resources in for many of our teaching team, our favorite resource, it's called The Bible Project. And The Bible Project makes incredible resources, different videos, podcasts, and other things um, that really dive into the root um, of uh, many different difficult themes in scripture and show how all of it ultimately points to Jesus. So um, there's a video that I want to show all of you for tonight um, that kind of brings this to life. Let's check it out. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. The very first word used in this description of God is compassionate, or in Hebrew, rachum. This word also appears as a noun, rachamim, or compassion. And what's fascinating is that both of these words are related to the Hebrew word for womb, rechem. So compassion in the Hebrew Bible is centered on a person's core, and the word invites us to imagine a mother's tender feelings for her vulnerable infant. So rahum is a word that conveys intense emotion. Sometimes it's even translated as deeply moved, like in the story of King Solomon, who meets two women who've just given birth. One of their babies sadly dies, but then both women claim that the baby still living is theirs. As a test, Solomon says to cut the baby in two and give each mother a half. And the baby's real mother is deeply moved. She would rather the other woman take her baby than see her child die. And it's her compassion that reveals that she's the true mother. But rahum isn't just an emotional word. It also involves action. And surprisingly, the word is used most often to describe God's actions motivated by his emotions. Like when the Israelites are suffering and oppressed in Egypt, God hears their cries and is compelled by his compassion, his rachamim, to rescue them. Then, as the Israelites travel through the dangerous wilderness, they're hungry and thirsty. And God is rachum, caring for them as his own child. He provides everything they need, food, water, and clothing, as he personally guides them. So it's no surprise that when Yahweh reveals his character to the Israelites in the wilderness, he begins by saying he's compassionate. But despite Yahweh's continual rachamim, the Israelites turn away from him time and again. They reject Yahweh's compassion and instead give their allegiance to other gods. And rather than showing compassion to each other, they do violence. And their rebellion results in exile and they're scattered among the nations. And it's in this dark moment in Israel's story that we come to the book of Isaiah where Yahweh compares himself to a mother full of rachamim toward her baby. He says, can a mother forget her nursing child or have no compassion or rachamim on the child of her womb? Even if she forgets, I will not forget you. God is full of motherly compassion and he will rescue his people. And as you read further in Isaiah, you realize that God is going to do this by entering into the suffering of humanity. And this points forward to a time when Jesus comes on the scene. He is Yahweh's deep compassion become human. In Greek, the word compassion is oiktirmas. 
And as Jesus embraces the sick and cares for the outcast, he is deeply moved by human suffering. Jesus compares himself to a mother hen using her wings to shield her chicks from danger as he gathers people into his embrace. And in the ultimate expression of oitirmas, Jesus is moved by compassion to enter into humanity's suffering, into death itself, to rescue and bring us near to God. And it's this same life of compassion that Jesus calls his followers to imitate, allowing ourselves to be moved by the pain of others, to embrace the hurting, and to participate in relieving suffering in the world. In this way, we too can embody the compassion of Yahweh, or in Jesus' words, be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. Now you can see how fitting it is that compassionate is the first word God uses to describe himself. So when we're in pain or see others suffering, we can be certain that God is deeply moved to respond and that he's there to meet us with his deep compassion. That video, um, I think, just epitomizes so much beauty about who God is, his character as a compassionate God. So um, just huge thanks to the Bible Project for creating content like this that really just helps to bring the story of Scripture to life in creative ways. So definitely check it out. Um, Now, as the video is saying, we have been recipients of great Compassion, And that's just one characteristic of God. But because we have been recipients of this compassion, we can now be demonstrators of this compassion to the world. We imitate our dad. We imitate his acts of compassion, of mercy, of justice, as we imitate him to the world. And this is why throughout scripture, we see this call for the people of God to do things like it was pointing out in the video to care for the poor, the marginalized, the hurting, the oppressed, those without a voice, the orphan, the widow, one another within biblical community. This is why we are called to care about the outsider because that is what God did to us. Because of what we have received, we now go and imitate our dad because we've seen him do it. And as we are in relationship with him, he's rubbing off on us. So we imitate him specifically by walking in love, which is where he goes in continuing in verse two. And he says, and walk in love is Christ loved and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. See, we not only love like the father in some general way, but specifically as we look at the ultimate demonstration of love on the cross in Jesus See, Jesus demonstrated the ultimate always and forever, never failing sacrificial love to the world. And he walked in love. Now notice the phrase that, he, that Paul uses here. He says, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, for the Jewish listeners and for the Gentiles listeners, this would have evoked some pretty strong thought patterns that pointed back to religious sacrifices in temples. Now, for the Jews, for the Jewish listener, it would have hyperlinked them to the sacrificial system that took place in the temple in Jerusalem. 
where multiple and specific sacrifices were offered to God in very specific ways during specific festivals, during specific times of the year. And each offering meant something different and unique about the character of God. Everything that was called for was specific. The, pr- the clothing that the priests would wear, um, what type of animal was to be offered at different festivals, Every, even the quality of the animal mattered. Everything was specific. And this is because the covenant that existed between God and the nation of Israel was broken time and time and time again by an unfaithful people. And these sacrifices were, very, were, were supposed to demonstrate that every little detail mattered, that it was endless blood, endless sacrifice to repair this relational inequity. Now, for the Gentile believers, they were no strangers to sacrifices, um, to, specifically to the goddess Artemis. Um, the goddess Artemis, uh, also known in Greek mythology as Diana. She's one, interestingly enough, um, Wonder Woman is based off of. But Artemis, is, uh, she was considered to be the goddess of the hunt and the goddess of fertility. And she existed within the Roman pantheon of gods, all the different gods that you see in Hercules. And uh, she had a massive temple that existed in Ephesus. It was called the Temple of Artemis, and it was so large that it's um, considered, you probably learned about in sixth grade history, uh, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was so large that you could fit on just the altar hundreds of animals to be sacrificed at the same time. Now, both Jews and Gentiles had a concept of sacrificial offerings, endless blood. For the Jews, it was to recover a relationship lost. For the Gentiles, sacrifices were made to hold back the quote-unquote anger of the gods, that they could somehow appease the gods and get them to do their will. Now, the reality is that what both of these views of sacrifice have in common is that they are both incomplete. They both need continual, endless blood, But you see, in Jesus, we don't have to work to repair the relationship and we don't have to try to appease some type of broken, false version of God. Instead, in Jesus, he's the ultimate demonstration of the love that Jesus has for the world. He was the perfect demonstration of the insane lengths that the God of the universe will go to bring us home. So the sacrifice was a fragrant offering. But the the smell wasn't great because the father was super excited to condemn Jesus to death. It was a fragrant offering because he could finally bring us home. Finally, the adoption could commence and the cost of the adoption had already been paid in full. And all we are left with, we're not left with the bill, we're left to live a life in response. Which is is why in Romans 12, verse 1, Paul writes it this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our response is not to go and do a literal sacrifice or to pretend that we have to sacrifice everything that we hold dear in some way that we're trying to appease God. It is a life in response to the sacrifice that's already been made. Because Jesus walked in love and his walk of love took him to the cross that we now walk in love. But our walk doesn't lead to death. Our walk leads to life 
and specifically a life filled with love. See, on the other side of the cross, we live in response. We live in this calling to be imitators of God, not by ending life, but by surrendering our lives to him, by seeing that every moment is captivated by an opportunity to follow the way of Jesus, to impersonate Jesus, to impersonate our Father, to live in his love. It's no coincidence that in the early church that they were oftentimes mocked by being called Christians. In other words, little Christs. That they would go throughout the ancient world and the biggest insult that could be forged against them was that they were imitating the acts of love that Jesus demonstrated to the world. They were truly imitators of God. So the joke was, look at all these little Jesuses taking care of orphans and widows, caring for the vulnerable. Ha ha ha. Like that was a funny joke or something. But like they were the living demonstration of the gospel. They were the hands and feet of Jesus to the world. Even in that passage that Emily read a little bit ago from Revelation, where it talks about that the Lamb of God has this seven, has seven eyes and seven horns. And Now, Jesus doesn't have seven eyes and seven horns. It's a metaphor. And it declares that when it says that that is the spirit. Those are the seven spirits, which harkens back to a little bit earlier where it's talking about the seven spirits which are with the seven churches that are noted in Revelation. In other words, God in Jesus is identified with his people as his people are identifying with him. We are called to imitate Jesus to the world. We are called to be the living demonstration of Jesus to a world that's in need of the hope that only he can bring. So the question is, where do you struggle to imitate God? If you're like me, you can think of more than a few. But the reality is that while none of us will do it perfect, our goal is not quote unquote perfection. It's to draw near to our father and to draw near to him by abiding in Jesus. And it's only that as we abide in Jesus that any of this is possible. But here's the deal. A child doesn't become like their parent because they like stalk their parent looking around the corner and like trying to avoid his gaze at all costs, right? You didn't learn about your parents by just searching them on Wikipedia, or maybe you did, but uh, like that would be kind of weird, right? By like just trying to learn facts about your parents. No, there are certain things even for you that you maybe personality quirks or whatever, um, uh, mannerisms, patterns of speech that you got from your parents because you are in relationship with them, right? And in the same way as we are in relationship with our Father, His compassion, His justice, His mercy begins to overtake us and wear off on us so that as we look in the mirror each day, we see less and less of ourselves metaphorically and more and more of Jesus metaphorically. So let this be the reminder that in the weeks ahead as we continue this journey in the book of Ephesians, as we dive deep into the implications of the gospel, The hope is not that we just simply will ourselves to a transformed life. It's that we receive a transformed life as we understand and live in the reality of our truest identity, which is son and daughter of the king. I can only imagine what it would look like if if followers of Jesus were known simply as kids who desired to learn what it looks like to live as loved. 
this would be, that we would become imitators of God because of this deep and abiding relationship that we have with him. I'm pretty sure it would change the world. And you see, as we do life, as we imitate God, it is not by our best efforts. It's by the power of the spirit of God dwelling within us, projecting it to the world. You see, this means that we now have relationship with God, which is appropriate because right now we're gonna be moving into a time of communion. So I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band to come on up. If you're new with us, um, or you come from some type, uh, some different um, faith community within, within Christianity. Um, let me let you know a little bit about what community, communion means to us here. Communion means that we now have a relationship with the Father, that we have communion with God himself, that we have a deep and abiding relationship with him that's not based on us, it's based on him. And that's what communion represents, the sacrifice of Jesus. That's why communion consists of two elements, usually wine or juice. We're only doing juice um, tonight um, because we have these little packets that you're, that you're gonna get um, that has both elements contained, um, prepackaged. Um, and, the, and the cup, that cup, it symbolizes the blood that was poured out for us, the sacrifice that was made, that fragrant offering for us. The bread symbolizes the flesh that was pierced on our behalf that we could now be whole in Christ. So that's what communion means for us. Now, if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to participate regardless of if you call this church your home, your home church. If you are not a follower of Jesus, feel no obligation to participate. Feel free to just stay seated. Instead, just sit and witness this moment as the community of God focuses our gaze completely and wholly on Jesus in a living symbol that embodies the beauty of the gospel that Jesus died so that we could live. And when he rose from the grave, the seal was stamped. We are his. So, if you are tuning in online, feel free to grab juice or wine in your home, maybe some bread, and feel free to participate in your own home as you grab those elements. And what I encourage all of us toward is to ponder on just the reality that how could have sacrificed so barbaric as death on a cross be considered a fragrant offering? Because it's through this offering that we are drawn into a love that casts out all fear, all anxiety, all shame, all relational discord, that we can now live to our truest identity in the family of God. If you are here in person and you would like to participate in communion, um, we have uh, one of our elders and one of our deacons in the back and um, they are wearing gloves, they have masks on. So we just ask that as you approach, please keep your um, face covering on as well. And they're gonna hand you a prepackaged um, pre communion packet. There's also hand sanitizer that's available um, for you in that space as well. So let me pray for us, for our time as we enter into this beautiful image of the gospel. Lord, how could it be that you 
would call us to imitate you. That we could even have any hope of being anything like the compassion that we see on the cross. The compassion that you demonstrated throughout the story of scripture, this, the compassion that you continue to demonstrate through your bride, the church. Lord, we need you. Thank you for communion. It's this beautiful display of your love that we could participate, that we could know that we are in you. Lord, would you draw us near to you as we drink the wine or drink the juice or the wine, eat the bread and know that we are loved.